Good afternoon and welcome to Hemispheres on KGNU-FM 88.5 Boulder, KGNU 1390 Denver. My name is Shannon Young and I'll be your guest host tonight. We're going to be mixing things up a bit in this time slot and bringing in some new voices of local people who have had lived experiences with international affairs. And in this particular case, we're going to be looking at immigration, but specifically Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, also known as DACA. It is a special type of immigration status that's not, uh, it falls short of permanent residency, but it does allow the the holders of this authorization to work and participate in daily life without the same amount of fear of deportation. But I'm going to let the people who have the lived experience get more into this. I'm joined in the studio by Victor Galvan and Armando Peniche. Both are members of MODIS, the the undocumented monologues. But how about you uh, start off by describing what you do in your own words? You're more than uh, your, your theater performances. Oh, yeah. Thank you for having us here. My name, like you said, my name is Armando Peniche. I actually work for Modus Theater. I'm the Partnerships and Project Manager. I am also one of the board directors for the Colorado Immigrant Rights Coalition. And I just stay uh, up to date with anything immigration related because, as you mentioned, that I, um, I used to be undocumented at one point, And then I was able and lucky enough to qualify for DACA. Right now, I'm actually a resident. I'm on my second year of being a resident, but my whole life since I came to this country at nine years old it revolved around immigration. And yeah, so th- we're very thankful for being here and open up conversations and just let people know. Victor. Yeah. Well, thank you for having us here. Uh, my name is Victor Galvan. I uh, currently work at Conservation Colorado as the um, uh, strategic partnerships manager under the Protegete program, so environmental justice, bringing the Latino voice to conservation and environmental justice work. And one of those things is um, immigration, because environmental and climate catastrophe cause immigration across the world. Um, But um, most of my life I've been um, involved in um, politics around immigration. Uh, Started my career back when I was about 21 at the Colorado Immigrant Rights Coalition, spent eight years there, um, and um, have become an expert um, both in local and federal immigration um, and try to keep up with international immigration law as well um, as it comes to us in the news. Yeah. And being an immigration expert is no small task. It's constantly in flux. It's incredibly complex. What all goes into becoming even just a, a layperson in immigration law in this country? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think that skill is really just about um, being able to think critically with the information that you're being provided and always um, leaving it to the legal experts to give the fine the fine um, um, lines around immigration. But the news is always changing, um, both at the state and the federal level. And um, sometimes with the international laws, we hear wars are waging, climate catastrophes and famine um, or atrocities happening across the world. Now, the two of you mentioned you're both involved in CERC, but also with MODIS. Tell folks about the, since you're, you're with MODIS, uh, tell, tell us about the Undocumented Monologues Project, how it started and what it does. Yes, thank you. So that's a great question because that's actually how I met Victor back in 2018. Um, Kirsten Wilson, the artistic director of MODIS Theater, launched a program called the Undoc America. And it's, it was an 18-week workshop of storytelling 
but um, what people don't realize is that in these workshops, there was a lot of trauma healing involved because there was 10 of us in that circle with all lived experiences surrounding immigration. But we were keeping stories that we hadn't told anyone publicly, publicly you know, because it's, it's not often that you're in a safe space where you're able to open up all wounds and just open them and be that vulnerable. So we went through these 17, 18 weeks of just telling and reopening those wounds and sharing with each other with the knowledge that of oh, this person has been through something similar, you know. So it was a great point of connection with each other and as a group, but it also personal healing. Like, I don't think, so I've done it for a few years now where I stand up and tell my monologue on stage. I wouldn't be able to do it if it wasn't for that workshop. Like, there's a lot of healing that took place. But we've been able to tour these monologues here locally in Colorado, but also nationally. It's part of also a podcast that we have people like Jorge Ramos, like Nicolas Kristoff. We have uh, Chef Jose Andres uh, co-read some of the monologues from the Undocumented Project. And one of the things that we found out with this project is that it's a weight um, catalyst to connect people, you know. In a lot of the performances, we often talk to people at the end, and they're like, oh, my God, I had no idea that this happens. You know, I had no idea that people go through this. I had no idea that you as a kid had to go through this to get to this point. And, you know, like, of course, like, w that's been our whole life. So it, there's that moment of shock where you're like, what, how could you not see this? You know, like, it's been right here. But also, you know, like, we take it with understanding that it's not talked about enough, you know, at times. You know, the, each of us have a story, but there's millions of people out there with similar stories, you know, of perseverance that need to be heard. But also, like, you need to be in a place in your heart and your mind to listen to it and take it from the understanding. Like, I'm just trying to connect with this person. Armando Peniche and Victor Galvan are here with me in the studio. We're discussing DACA, immigration, Modus Theater, the power of storytelling to be able to, to heal trauma. I think that something that really has stood out to me as I've gone to readings of the monologues is the level of detail that comes with it, like childhood memories that are so like vivid, <laughs> probably because it's been seared into the mind with trauma to be able to have these discussions and access those memories was there accompaniment like mental health professional mental health accompaniment or or therapy to be able to to take it in stride or or relive it in a healthy way so um this is the third um kind of project that i've done with modus theater i started back in 2013 with a group of um, five um, um immigrant um, through what was the um uh, the docu monologues show and we um really like were surprised by the the benefit of like going through some of those um, traumatic experiences and I'd say like those core memories that help form like some of the most important parts of how we walk, you know, the earth. We felt like there was a lot of breakdown in the process, you know, um, to be able to form the words to confidently express ourselves and also to vividly portray our humanity through our stories. I think when we first took on this process with Kirsten Wilson, our director, 
we were afraid that people wouldn't see our humanity in it. And I think that's the, the incredible work of Kirsten Wilson is she does bring the humanity into our stories. She pulls it out and teases it out with questions and workshops that, that really tease out these memories that really um, can speak to anyone's heart. And so it's a lot of listening to trauma, it's reliving trauma, but also in the process, like dealing with it. So often as people who survive trauma, and people who have to continue to live in it, we don't have the luxury of stepping aside, talking to someone in the moment, a professional, to tease out what lessons were learned, right? We steamroll it, you know? Single mother of three trying to feed and clothe and shelter her children doesn't just sit down and cry about how horrible this moment was in her life. She, she survives it and continues through it but never deals with the trauma of that. And so that is the story of us, right? We steamroll this trauma, and I think it's been very therapeutic to relive some of those moments, although heartbreaking and painful, have been important for us to understand why we function the way we function and also how resilient we are and just appreciation for those kids that got through some of the most incredibly hard moments in our lives. Um, with such vigor, with such determination and intention, and never tripped and just went through it. Um, and I think a, it speaks to a lot of our audience who have gone through something similar. You know, in, in many of our monologues, we talk about our parents. I think that's a common theme across, like our grandparents, our parents, and a lot of people connect with that humanity in the stories. It's like, it's no longer about just an immigrant or this brown person or this, this woman or this man. It, it's about this child, right, of a, of a mother who has these expectations of a father, of a grandfather, of a grandmother. And it speaks to that part of you that you just know is authentically you. Um, that expectation of family, the expectation of education, of perseverance, of making a better life for yourself, your children, leading the legacy that your parents or your grandparents have like set before you and carrying it like a torch. I think those themes are so ingrained as human beings, right? As like uh, what we are as human beings and that connection is so visceral. And I think why um, the Ndaki monologues are so effective in reaching people, right? And then opening up the conversation to the political piece, right? It's like, well, they're, they are these human beings that have these powerful stories and values and connect head and heart, but they're here because of a specific policy, right? A decision by a government that we may not agree with, right? And so it opens up conversation to, well, I've gotten to know you as a human being. I connect with you. I've had so many people, and I'm sure you have, Armando, come up to you as if they know you and expect almost this reciprocal response. And I asked myself, like, have I actually met this person or did they see me perform and just had this connection through the microphone? And so I have those embarrassing moments quite often because I am also really bad with faces. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, we have this deep connection and understanding and we open up into dialogue where we talk about what are the policies? What are the things that you can actually do to affect change um, in some of these people's lives and people like us who are living among you, growing up with you and, and care about the community just as much as you do, right? 
um, stripping away all the the fallacies and the lies that we hear in in the media, right? Um, and they are the themes of our of our of our pieces, right? It's like you have no other choice but beca- to become political because the politics are so ingrained in who you are and how you move and walk through the world. I want to ask with the discussions that you that you had amongst each other in the process of writing your monologues and remembering things, what kinds of discussions did it bring up with your parents who were with you at the time, but maybe took for granted that you wouldn't remember something? Yeah, some of the discussions were, I think it opened, I don't know for you, Victor, but I think it they opened up more our hearts to be receptive to like, okay, like I know what another monologist in the group would their experience with their parents and grandparents were like because it was a lot of shared experiences. It was also a point of reflection for a lot of us of, okay, like DACA recipients, it's mostly children who were brought to this country as children, right? And they're seen as, okay, or we're seen as, okay, like you have to be almost perfect to qualify for this. The parents in turn are seen like somewhat of bad people, like the villains for bringing us here. Right. But that's not the case, because in our eyes, there's nothing but heroes. You know, they sacrifice so much to cross that border, to get us here, to give up their life, their health, their families back home to get us to this point where their children can thrive or try to thrive in this country. You know, and that's something that was big for me. Um, I got to share with another monologist in the group uh, person that they were like, oh, like your story, like made me think about my grandpa, my grandpa and my father, you know, and it was this was also, I think, around the time where there was a lot of discussions about DAPA, the Deferred Action for Parents, actually. Parentheses, what is DAPA? So DAPA was something that President Obama was trying to also put in place similar to DACA, but it would benefit parents. It would also, I think, it expanded the age where you would qualify for DACA because there's a lot of people that fell off by just months, days even, where they couldn't qualify for DACA because there was a set deadline. So it was uh, somewhat of an expansion, but it, it got blocked in the court. So it unfortunately, did not happen. And a lot of parents were very excited because there was a possibility of it happening. And at the end, it got blocked. And yeah, they were left in there also in the whole being undocumented. But I know a lot of our parents, they lived through us. So they were just happy we got to receive DACA. And you know they had to put those things aside. And as children, and now um, I also, I actually lost my father a couple of years ago also through something immigration related that could have been solved if we had a better immigration system but you know it's it's hard to witness that you know like seeing your parent give up so much for you and at the end you know they don't get anything you know and they're viewed in this country as if they were bad for bringing us into this country yeah um i think that in the media there was this trope or or this almost this cliche that was go-to about um when you talk about DACA, you say, oh, well, these, these youths who came here through no fault of their own, right? <laughs> Criminalization of the parents. Um, I want to, to ask about rising to the level of these expectations and what kind of pressure that puts on you, not just of your own parents' expectation, like wanting to do right by them, but having to also live up to this image of respectability that has been, the bar has been set so high for making DACA recipients deserving of the, the basic authorization to be here. 
what kind of pressure is that like to to deal with? Yeah, I mean the the good immigrant bad immigrant narrative um and that dichotomy is, has been so toxic within the immigrant rights work. I remember very clearly in 2012, 2013, uh, the Colorado Immigrant Rights Coalition having to make this this very intentional pivot. We had been working with the Sheriff's Association and the Chief's Association across the state of Colorado to um, work on policy that would essentially end the use of ice holds. And so law enforcement was trying to negotiate, well, what crimes would it be okay to hold someone um, for instance, murder, rape, um, drug crimes, right? Whether trafficking, you know, human trafficking. Are there laws or there criminal offenses that are so grave that they absolutely deserve an immigration repercussion? I, I should probably stop here at this point for people who may, might not have any kind of familiarity mm-hmm. with the subject. What is an ice hold and what can it do? Yeah, so an ice hold is an administrative warrant. So it's a warrant that it's essentially a piece of paper written by an immigration officer that essentially persuades local police and sheriffs to um, use as if it were a judicially reviewed warrant. And I say judicially reviewed because this is something very specific, right? It's, a, it's an order from a judge signed by a judge. And so it's a court order whereas an administrative warrant is just a piece of paper. It's a note scribbled together by an immigration agent. I'm sure ICE won't appreciate this or DHS. But um, I think it's it's, an abuse of power by the immigration and customs enforcement and sometimes other officials within um, the Department of Homeland Security in order to persuade local law enforcement to do their work. And so it's harder to get a judicially reviewed warrant. It takes time. And so when immigration, their role is really to capture, detain, and remove immigrants who they see as like like unwanted or, you know, so they um, have used this ice hold as what it's called in, in layman's terms for, for um, some of the local law enforcement. And they so they get an email or a fax um, or sometimes a phone call saying, we have an ice hold, uh, or we want you to put a hold on this person using this administrative warrant. So that's why they call it an ice hold. Um, here in our district, um, it's been deemed unconstitutional by the 4th District Court. So this this is a case that happened in Oregon. An immigrant sued and said that they were unlawfully detained by their local sheriff when they had no right to. And the federal judge said, yes, you're absolutely right. They had no right. And so I'm deeming these ice holds, these administrative warrants, unconstitutional because they're not judicially reviewed. It's just made by an agent of Immigration and Customs Enforcement. So in that process to remove the, or to to get rid of and uh, um, make this, the use of ice holds um, obsolete here in the state of Colorado, we worked with local law enforcement because we had just passed a law um, saying that local law enforcement shouldn't do the work of federal immigration agents. And so that was the, the, the Trust Act back in 2013 and um, was enacted immediately. We worked with state police, local law enforcement, and sheriffs across the state, all 64 counties, um, in order to, to implement this law. And so the question of using these ice holds, which at that time hadn't been deemed unconstitutional, they weren't deemed unconstitutional in 20- 
2014. And so they were posing the question, what laws, what, what, what criminal code are you okay with us actually using these ice holds? And so we actually had to go back to our coalition, stakehold this process throughout the state and talk about like, well, what crime, right? Like murder, rape, right? All of these. Like, Violent we, crime. We literally went through all criminal code with, um, with I'd say about 20 um, different meetings across the state um, with um, coalition members, community members, talk them through what the criminal code was. And we line by line said, any of these, like we literally put pieces of paper with the criminal code, the, the layman's terms for that criminal code and the crime and asked one by one, what would we accept? And I remember that list being pretty large at first. And then as we had conversations, whittling it down because we were hearing the consequences. We're like, well, we're assuming that they're gonna be kept in jail or that they're, they're gonna pay their punishment, right? Um, and then immigration consequences would come after. So they would spend 25 years in jail for murder, or, you know, first degree, second degree, whatever. And then still, after paying their dues to society, get held by immigration, put into deportation proceedings, and then have a punishment that is forever, right? So, I mean, that in itself was a huge moment for us as a, as a movement, right? This dichotomy of bad immigrant, good immigrant. And we we're telling ourselves like, no, like, it's important for us to hold the line that no one should pay immigration consequences for a crime that they're already paying for, right? Um, and it further solidified that we, we wanna stand united, that this dichotomy will not divide us as a movement. And so living up to those expectations, right? Like you said, through no fault of their own, it is a huge pressure for a lot of immigrants and they still hold that very deeply that they should never be in trouble. In fact, they should be the shining star. And sometimes it, it leads us to, to making some decisions that are detrimental, right, to our own mental health, um, pressure that parents put on children, that we put on ourselves to like overachieve. And for folks that just don't have that capacity or made a mistake before they really internalize that, they feel guilty for letting down their family. And so I've had so many friends and family and um, members that you know had committed a crime, say like got a marijuana charger, DUI or something like that, and they didn't qualify for DACA, and they feel this huge weight that like now they have to hide or that there's some kind of weight on their on their family member because of it, um, and it's all circumstantial. Like it wouldn't be this way if they were an American citizen, or if they didn't have this pressure of like being a good immigrant. Um, when they deserve redemption, same as anyone else. And for those who do have that pressure of overachieving, like it's, it's so destructive and insidious to have these expectations of children sometimes of like being the best, never messing up. And then when they do, feeling not, not just the consequences, but the pressure from their family of like, you know, how could you let them down? you know, and, and, you know, bring this possible, like, attention to their family because they are in this situation where it's, it, it could put their safety, you know, in danger. So there's so much pressure of, like, being this good immigrant and for folks who, who, who do mess up or trip, um, there's no redemption for them. And it's a scary life to live. Victor Galvan, 
Listeners, if you're just joining us, uh, I have in the studio Victor Galvan and Armando Peniche. They're both discussing their lived experience with uh, with immigration, with DACA status, and how that has repercussions on family, society, and the, the space that they navigate daily. We're getting pretty uh, intimate with the details. It's, a, it's all in the spirit of trying to understand and have some insight about what your neighbors may be going through. Um, Armando, I wanted to ask you, having to grow up with expectations, living up to to honor the sacrifices of your parents, how, how has that informed your own way of parenting? Well, yes, um, my way of parenting, because now I have a 12-year-old boy, <laughs> And, you know, he's the biggest blessing I've had in my life. And I see a lot of those experiences, those lessons that my dad was trying to give me growing up. And now I get to, to give those out. But that is a great question because as as growing up here in this country, like Victor mentioned, we have to be almost perfect growing up here, right? Like no jaywalking tickets, no traffic violations. There has been people that have been in trouble for, you know, little little traffic violations like that, you know, sometimes deported. And one of the things that I want to make clear is that, you know, having that conversation of good immigrant versus bad immigrant, it's view that we have to be almost perfect to be to qualify for deferred action. But in reality, you know, like we should just be, you know, seen as human, you know, like our humanity deserves respect. Right. Like we don't have to be oh, a doctor, a scientist or work for NASA to be like, oh, look, these DACA recipients are doing good. Right. No, it should be like, you know, we're just trying to live our life just like you are, just like a lot of our community is. But yeah, um, one of the things I learned with my dad's passing is that, you know, I went back and looked at a lot of pictures, videos from ourselves. He would share a lot of my anything I, I had on Facebook, like if I had an interview or I had a show, he would share so much. And I was like, man, like all this time I was trying to be perfect for him. And here I am now realizing that he was proud of me this whole time. You know, like I didn't have to be this perfect son, a perfect person. He was just proud to be my father, you know. So in that sense, like now that I'm parenting and I have a U.S. citizen boy, I try to also share those values with him. Like, you know, you know what? No matter who you are, no matter what you do, like I'm going to be proud of you, you know. And I think that's uh, a lens that we should be viewed with as immigrants. You know, we come to this country bringing a lot of contributions, a lot of diversity, and those should be seen and celebrated more than, you know, the faults of if some of us made mistakes or not. You know, like, you know, we're not we're not celebrated for every DACA recipient being a doctor, just how we shouldn't be, you know, punished for someone that made a mistake, right? And let's talk about the celebration. We're here at the, the halfway point. Again, I want to remind listeners, uh, having a conversation with Victor Galvan and Armando Peniche, they're both monologists with the Undocumented Undaca America. Undaca America. Undaca America series. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. Uh, with Modus Theater, they've also had, uh, both of them had prior experience with CERC, the Colorado Immigrant Rights Coalition. And I want to touch on something that you just said. You know, you shouldn't have to, um, you know, living within the, the stereotypes or having to, to feel like you have to break stereotypes, but also there should be celebration. What do you feel should be celebrated? I think 
most importantly, our diversity. You know, like I'm a big food person, and just the food that we bring to the table should be celebration enough. But, of course, it's not that simple. <laughs> but a lot of the contributions, you know, like a lot of us working in the community, we're contributing to a healthy community, a diverse community, when you have a lot of perspectives, not just one. Right? That often leads to a better environment in schools and workplaces, wherever you are. So that's, a, I think, a big contribution that should be celebrated. Our diversity should be celebrated. You know, like, think about the immigrant experience, right, how it is coming to this country. And if you're listening, if you think about, like, that first time you went to the zoo or a cool space like the museum as a kid, and you're like, wow, like, I can't believe this is here, right? Like, that's how most immigrants who come to this country are. They're like, we're just amazed at, oh, what? you have sidewalks on this street? You have street lights. That is amazing, right? So I think we should and we could build a community that celebrates that, right? Like our diversity. And sometimes people don't agree on issues, right? But where do we see eye to eye, right? Where's that space that we can sit down and have a conversation and be like, all right, like you see things this way? Like there must be a reason, like what's underneath that's making you see things differently, right? Like I really, truly don't believe there's even anti-immigrant people. I don't think they're bad at heart. I think they just haven't experienced enough, you know, around the community, around a diverse community to know some of the issues we go through, you know, like wherever you look at, like if it's in school, it's hard to get into schools if you're an immigrant, you know, healthcare, like I mentioned with my daddy, he passed away because of failed uh, healthcare system, you know. Uh, licenses. Not everyone has the privilege of driving in this country. You know, little things that we take for granted, you know, they should be available. I want to ask also to both of you, you mentioned this, oh, wow, moment of, of seeing a different country through new eyes. What has been your experience in being able to go back to the countries you were born in and re-experience early childhood memories as an adult and what does immigration status do to limit your ability to have that freedom of movement and to reconnect yeah so we had the honor of like just in the privilege to apply for advanced parole which is a uh, allowed for DACA recipients and other immigration statuses um, refugee status uh, asylum and other temporary statuses that um, allow immigrants to travel back to their country of origin or outside of the country in order to, um, and for specific reasons, business, for humanitarian, so like um, an ailing or dying relative, and um, um, for school. And so we just went to the Ciudad Mexico in the state of Mexico um, to La Escuela Agricola de Texcoco, um, or the Chapingo um, yeah. in Texcoco, yeah. which is one of the biggest agricultural universities in the country. And um, we performed our monologues and um, actually celebrated the Mexican New Year, which we found out really for, for us is the first time hearing about it. But the, the Mexican government um, wants to revive this celebration of the Mexican New Year. And um, absolutely wonderful experience. I think I speak for all of us how magical it was to to leave the country. Also very scary, but to to um, land in Mexico, um, to be amongst people who spoke Spanish, and to see our indigenous 
and Mexican culture just celebrated without any any hesitation. Um, just an incredibly beautiful amalgam of so many different cultures and um, and cuisine and music and 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 just everything. The art was so breathtaking. And I think for many of us, we really wanted to take advantage of the moment to um, go and see our family. So I know um, many of us had family reunions. I went to go see my brother and dad, who I hadn't seen for over 16 years. Both of them um, deported. Just beautiful to pick up where we left off. Um, I think a lot of people may never, you know, experience that type of family separation, but you you miss so many Im- important moments even the day-to-day things you know the way that people crack jokes the the mistakes they make and the 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 way that you know um they they speak to you you know um it's the things that we treasure you know and just being with family and um immigration has just been such a huge cause of family separation across the globe um, and so this trip was really incredible um, for so many reasons. But I think um, just being able to to, to connect deeply. Um, I grew up here, and I mean, I, I honestly was weeks away from being born in El Paso, Texas, but by chance, you know, ended up being born in Chihuahua, Mexico. And so I've been here my entire life, so I don't have that deep connection with Mexico. So it was getting to know the country for the first time and just being blown away by everything. This trip that Victor mentions, uh, we got, we had the privilege of going through MODIS as a work trip. And the first thing for me that was amazing was like, wow, my home seems a lot smaller than when I left. You know, when you're little, I was like, well, we live in a big house. And when I got there, I was like, oh, this is actually really small. I could touch the ceiling. (laughs) Everything looks so much smaller. But as Victor mentioned, it was magical. Um, The Mexican New Year celebration, which starts um, around March, it's the first planting of the corn. And that starts the Mexican New Year, according to them. And it's something like I had no idea about, you know, living here. And it touches on another point, which is like being here as a first generation immigrant. We're not seen as Americans, of course, right? But also coming back to Mexico, we're not seen as Mexicans. So we're in this middle gray area. We're like, okay, we're not fully Mexicans. We're not fully Americans. We're in both. But I like to say we're 100% from here and 100% from that because we have those shared experiences, those lived experiences. But it was great to be around that and to be invited to this corn celebration. One of the cool things is that we actually got to meet a descendant of Moctezuma, and he just, you know, every time he spoke, it was like like poetry. You know, he just had so much knowledge. So in a way, we got to reconnect with our indigenous roots, you know, that we, a lot of us, and I'm speaking a lot for myself, we didn't know much about, you know, and just to know where our indigenous groups came from, what they lived like over there was amazing, you know. We got to collect a lot of obsidian from there near the volcanoes. Like, wow, like this is awesome, you know. So it was for us and for me like that, like that first time at the at the science museum. Like, wow, this is amazing, right? And also, um, yeah, seeing family. I got to see a reunion from my mom and my grandma, who they saw my sister, who they hadn't seen in about 23 years, and just being a witness of that moment. It was just emotional you know like I was crying the whole time seeing that moment you know because 
And I'm going to take a line from my monologue from America that, you know, as soon as we cross the border, we're like serving a life sentence away from our families. You know, we're growing up year and years going by and we're losing that connection with cousins, you know, with grandparents, even brothers, sisters, sometimes parents that are on the other side, you know, and we have really no way of connecting with them. You know, the advanced parole that Victor is talking about is not it's not easy to get. You know, it's a complicated process. And you have to be almost lucky to get it. You know, so it's not as easy as like I can go see my mom tomorrow. Right. It's not that easy. So they grow up. And as we get older, we can only see them through pictures, through videos, through phone calls, you know, but there's not really that connection, you know. I am on one of my trips, because uh, now, like I said, I'm a resident now, thankfully. I got to go to Mexico, and I have like 15 cousins in Mexico. And like, oh, last time I saw you, you were so little, like seven, eight years old. And it's going to be one of my coolest moments in life, but I am a big soccer player. I play soccer even here. But over there, they had a game. They had a soccer game for a team where all the cousins play, right? And they're like, hey, Armando, here you're in town. Come on, come play with us. And I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll go watch you. And they're like, we're missing a player. Come join the team. And I was like, oh, I, get, like, I was just, I was playing in dress shoes. But I was playing with it, and I was so happy that, you know, finally I had to have a family moment with my cousins, you know? Mm. Mm. Well. So y- you both mentioned advanced parole. What all goes into that? For somebody who might just be used to saying, well, I have a passport. I'm going to just click on this airline ticket and, and take off. What do you have to do when you have DACA status to be able to to have advanced parole? Yeah. I mean, honestly, Armando was the one that really set up uh, the group for success. Um, the university reached out to him and, and was able to set up a contract to get us down to perform in, in Texcoco and the Universidad Atonima de Chapingo. And when that got brought up, I mean, that was August of last year, and we started talking to a lawyer in um, in November after having various meetings of like, are we gonna do this? What are the risks legally? You know, there's some things in the air with like this judge challenging DACA. What if it ends while we're abroad? What does that mean for us? So there was a lot of discussions around like what it meant to actually apply and leave the country with this temporary status. The other thing was like, there's no certainty even if you're approved that you're gonna re-enter the country. It's all at the discretion of the uh, Customs and Border Patrol agent that receives you coming into the United States. And I know for citizens, you know, they might experience that entering another country, but entering the United States, it feels so, like so much pressure um, is riding on it. It's like, you, definitely don't want to have like decided to self-deport but on a whim (laughs) and so there's a lot of conversations that need to happen beforehand and then the sheer expense um we had to talk to a lawyer which you know uh for us you know um we were able to get pro bono um through the university of colorado the the law school of of the university of colorado um shout out to violeta Chapin, uh, Chapin, who helped us out um, and was able to help us with a handful of law students that worked through our, our our applications and a handful of headaches, I'm sure. But, you know, that was also an expense to apply. It was about $500 per person um, on top of, you know, the expenses of actual travel. So it, it was quite pricey. The decision was not light. And we were all nervous going and then coming back. And so it, it, was, it was an incredibly 
difficult decision, not something you make on a whim, and very complicated to say the least. And of course, you have to qualify. So there's the the stress of waiting for the answer, the response from the the United States Citizen and Immigration Service, who determines whether or not you qualify for this privilege. Thank you, Victor Galvan. I want to perhaps get a bit more into detail for folks who need to understand the level of social control that is involved or just individual con- like control over an individual that is involved in having DACA status and applying for residency, just, you know, you, what you described as going on an international trip, but how about for getting a job, for changing jobs, for moving, just deciding to move from one location to the other? What are little things that U.S. citizens may take for granted that are entire ordeals that you have to register and advise ICE about that are just regular kind of things for for U.S. citizens? I mean, the I think people don't understand the overbearing and almost paternal relationship you have, like, with immigration once you are in the system. And so as soon as you apply for a status, you're under scrutiny whether or not your history, your current, you know, um, you know, ongoings in your life, and then like the the pressures of the actual status, whether or not it's going to lapse, um, whether like saving up for you know the renewals, and then doing it year after year. So the the status is temporary for only two years, and then you have to reapply. So every other year you're reapplying for this status, spending another five hundred dollars, and then legal fees depending on if your case is complicated or not. Um, to make sure that you obtain the status again. I mean, I've had the the status lapse while I'm waiting for immigration based on the presidency, right? Um, one presidency was better than the other. And so immigration, you know, it felt like in some cases fiddled their tum- thumbs and others felt like super fast. And so you never know who you're going to get in terms of your agent, if they're going to be pressured by the, the current politics of the administration and if they're going to go do it and do right by your application. And so, you know, living without status, you know, I've had the privilege of not having employers that care very much about whether or not it lapses. They care that the social security number is there and that they're able to process my income and pay my taxes, but that's it. Um, For others, I know that they've been laid off or fired because their status lapsed. Um, On top of that, you mentioned moving. Every time you move, you have to notify Immigration and Customs. You know, um, USCIS knows um, where you live, your criminal record, and and if and when you land in in jail, like your status is up for contest. Like they will take it away. And I've had friends, um, family members um, um, who have lost the status, unfortunately, and are essentially you know at risk for deportation um, because of it. So very stressful. It's a nightmarish situation to live in, and I mean. It feels like you're always being looked at under a microscope and there's no privacy. Um, Anything that goes on, you have to worry about. And, um, you know, the other thing is, like, (laughs) you have to be careful. I've had situations where my friends are making risky, you know, um, choices and I've had to walk away or tell them, hey, I cannot, I can't participate. And so, you know, for my own well-being, for my safety, I've had to walk away from some friendships or tell them like you either have to change your life or we can't we can't 
share space. Armando. I also wanted to add one of the biggest things I know for me uh, when I used to have a DACA. So DACA, if I Armando with DACA, one of the biggest things is planning your your life every two years. You know, DACA is a renewable um, permit, it, but you have to renew it every two years, right? So me, Armando, was a DACA recipient. I can't plan to buy a house in five years from now, right? Because I don't know what I'll be in two years. Or school, right? Kind of like, okay, I'm going to go to a four-year school, but you don't even know if you're going to be here for two more years, right? So it's a huge challenge being in that, like living your life two years at a time while also trying to maintain a perfect life. You know, like we all, of course, should strive to stay out of trouble, live a perfect life. People make mistakes, you know. It's human nature, you know, but in, and it's just a lot of pressure at times for people. Like, okay, like you have to be a model citizen, live a perfect life, or in two years you might be gone, you know, and it, it takes a toll mentally, physically, emotionally. You know, think about um, an example would be if you're on vacation, let's say you're um, in Hawaii, California, right? You're like enjoying yourself, but you're almost afraid to look at the phone because of what news might come out of it. You know, like in today's age, we are in a new cycle that, you know, by the hour it changes. And it's just like that, like you have these happy moments. But then you're afraid of those little commercial breaks where you check your phone and see, like, okay, now what's going on with that guy? What's going on with my life? Am I going to have to stress? So it brings a lot of stress also. And listeners, we are recording this on May 17th. And this morning, uh, I was looking to see if there were any updates on DACA before coming in for this interview. And there was something about there's, there's a judge who I believe he's the same one who stopped DAPA, he, he has a reputation and a history of making rulings against expansions of rights for immigrants. There is now a case before his court that may affect the future of DACA, and it was just one of those moments where I'm like, well, what do you think about this? And it's kind of like well, something happened, right? So this this is what you're talking about with these commercial breaks where you just even check in your phone, it can kind of throw off your reality and, you, and your brain starts going through, what are the implications of this? Do I need to start stressing? Do I need to start making contingency plans? And how you were saying, Victor, about um, you don't get to post-traumatic stress if there's no post about it. That's right. That's right. We're living it every day. And it feels like um, it's it's just constant whiplash with the politics around immigration and like this political football being punted back and forth. You don't know where to look, where to focus, where to build. Um, and it's always being like knocked over. Whatever progress you've made is knocked over by the current politics and how how big, you know, one party wants to bark to the other and send a message. Um, and that's what it feels like. Immigration and immigrants are a message, right? You have um, George DeSantis and, and um, the Texas um, governor um, sending buses of immigrants across the country on this farce that they're going to find another home ending up in the front of Kamala Harris's office like it's not okay like we are not pawns in a political game and and unfortunately you know that's the way that people are being used we see that um, DeSantis just <laughs> signed you know SB 1718 into law um, and scaring a lot of our um, brothers and sisters to move away from a life that they've established. It's horrible to live under that type of pressure. It's scary, violent, 
and um, unfortunately, it's the it's the way that we have to live life. We have to always be on our tiptoes to like sprint for safety, and that's what a lot of our brothers and sisters are doing in Florida now, leaving the state out of fear that um, when the hammer drops on June first that they'll be on the chopping block, that um, people, their neighbors, maybe be able to make a call to Immigration and Customs Enforcement and sick the dogs on them, you know, um, being used as a political pawn to, like, you know, somehow just, like, build this utopia of, like, a, a country without immigrants. And so, you know, I I worry for my brothers and sisters who are, are, are caught in the crossfire of this political fight and the, the communities that will suffer because um, those immigrants are moving away um, with so much that they're contributing to the economy, to the country, to um, the day, day, day in and day out life of their Floridian brothers and sisters. Um, the same happened in Georgia, um, you know, just a few years ago, and they suffered the consequences that um, millions of dollars of harvest went, you know, unharvested, rotted in the cro in in the fields um, because people left construction projects left unfinished and we see that with everything you know license laws changing um, for the better the worst um, you know some states changing their laws so that undocumented students can't go to college or some changing them so that they can so like these incredibly powerful moments of benefits and consequences for immigrants and it feels like we're just, our roots are just settling into the earth and we're uprooted again. And so it feels like it should be a crime to, to, to play with people's lives this way. And I hope there are political consequences for these absurd notions that they're bettering our community by attacking our, our, our people. And I hope people understand how incredibly unjust it is to do something like this. You know, as you mentioned, Judge Hainan, he has been uh, a tool and uh, a strong arm for the conservative, you know, the conservatives in this country to move against executive orders like Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals and um, the uh, DAPA, which is the same program but for parents, and immediately, you know, um, being, being challenged in the courts. I mean, DACA has been challenged in the courts by this specific judge many a times. And now the higher courts have said, we're gonna let the, the lower courts rule. So it's now in his, his playing field and he's, he's warming up to end this program. And I don't want to set fear in my community, but I also wanna make sure that we're, we're pivoting when we need to and preparing ourselves. So um, people need to be prepared. Um, if this program ends, what this may mean for their life. Um, losing this work permit and, you know, the protection against deportation, it's temporary. And so, you know, for us, it's always calling on Congress, which has felt like has done nothing in the means of actually making progress on immigration in the past, you know, better part of three decades. And so we're relying on systems that haven't worked in favor of immigrants. Um, we've relied on executive orders that have been challenged in the courts, and we're still on our toes to see if this program will survive. Victor Galvan, what you were saying there about fear, it reminds me of back in 2006 when it seemed like there was a watershed moment and the, the slogan at the time was undocumented and unafraid. And now it's been this whole 
steady march to instill fear. When so many lives are in the balance of one court or one judge, there are systems in place in this country to be counterweights. And you mentioned the Congress. And you mentioned also that you, you're involved in political activities, lobbying, like you're intimately familiar with uh, legislative negotiations. Why has this not been solved? And is it going to take something that, is, that could have such catastrophic consequences for so many people for there to be change? Or will it be a, sh- a shrug and too bad for you? Yeah, I feel like this is one place where the American public has been led to a point where they allow for this type of violence to be committed on an entire group of people. Immigrants have traditionally become the scapegoat for falling economies, um, an attention grab away from, you know, congressional and presidential mistakes, war. So anytime the United States gets into some type of trouble, right, or makes some kind of error, it feels like they use immigrants to scapegoat their problems. And instead of looking to immigrant community as a solution, they use us as this political pawn in order to take attention from the real issues. Um, and I think both parties are, are responsible for that type of, of use of and abuse of like the, the immigration um, political topic, right? Um, We are given hopes by the progressives, um, threatened by the conservatives, and then they pressure each other with those notions in order to make political gains with their bases. And so I think there's a lot of people who are having their heartstrings plugged in one way or the other, plucked in one way or the other um, for the the gains of one, you know, political party um, or both, you know? And so we we really need to um, understand each other here. I'm not reaching out to my community because they know what it's like to live in my shoes. They know. I'm reaching out to the other side for those of uh, the those of our community that either refuse to learn or have no experiences that put them in that position to learn what it's like to be an immigrant in this country. And so this is why we do our monologues, why we perform across the state and now internationally, because we want to help people understand what it's like to live this kind of life. Um, help people understand that we are so much more alike than we are different and that we're striving for the same thing. We want to survive. We want to thrive. We want to build community. And I think there's these very pivotal moments in our monologues where people's eyes open and they realize how wrong they were to judge someone for the decisions that they made. How, how incredibly similar our paths are and how our humanity coincides in that way. That we want a better life for our community, for our friends, for our family, and that we're, we're all wrestling with this political football that is not working for any of us. So I am reaching out to those folks who are cheering on our conservative counterparts who want to see us gone. Because I know that I'm living in the same neighborhood where we have crappy water quality. We're, we're living in the same communities where we're breathing the bad air. 
where our taxes are not being used for good, where our, we're being pitted against each other for jobs, where we're not being paid enough. All of these problems are so universal to our bases. And for some reason, someone's whispering in their ear and turning them against their neighbor. And we need to fight that. I know that everyone that has, has, has you know, um, worked against us can find common ground with us. And that's all we want, is common ground to work for progress. Victor Galvan, I think you beat me to the punch to say we're coming up at the end of time. Any closing statements? I, I Now I'm going to kick it to Armando Peniche. Anything that you would like to add or what you would like to say while we're in front of these microphones? No, yeah, of course. First of all, thanks for having us. And second of all, to all our listeners, thank you for being here and listening to this program because that's exactly what we're talking about, right? Like taking the time to listen, to listen to someone's other story without judgment, just, just being able to take it, right? And I want to add that, you know, in this beautiful world of ours, you know, humans have only been here for what, a few thousand years or depending on your belief, right? But just I want to touch to your talk to your heart and be like, how, how do you want to be remembered? Right. Immigration is should be a right. You know, th before we had borders, people were free to migrate for better opportunities. Right. And when you have a group of people who are just trying to live, trying to provide for their children, for their families, you know, uh, many of us here in the U.S., many U.S. citizens, you know, you don't you can't, you know, experience what that is like because that's not the cards that you were dealt. But I'm sure you can relate to an experience of, you know, what hunger feels like, what uh, no opportunity feels like, you know, a bad day. So just reach out to humanity, to your hearts. And, you know, like Victor said, we're trying to build community. Listeners, I do want to thank you for tuning in. I've been speaking today with Victor Galvan and Armando Peniche. They're both from Modus Theater, Monologuist. They both have lived experience with DACA status, and they have been sharing their stories and their personal experiences with us for the past hour. I hope uh, you were able to take something away from this conversation. Thank you for listening to Hemispheres tonight. I, I'm guest hosting it tonight. My name is Shannon Young. You are listening to KGNU 88.5 FM, Boulder, KGNU 1390, Denver. Thank you.